On today's episode, Anna is covering the story of her Baumeister, a family man who led a terrifying double life. Welcome to Crime Bar. Hello, Ashley. Hi, Anna. <laughs> what? I just love that we greet each other after having spent just constant time Years together. together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Ashley, you know, you know, I love a double life story. <laughs> <laughs> I have a morbid fascination with them. Mm-hmm. It, the personality type, obviously, the fact that you can exhibit extreme violence and corruption and then maintain a relatively normal home life with a wife and kids is mind-blowing to me Mm -hmm. and my worst nightmare so I like to cover lots of them (laughs) just so they're fresh in my brain at all times so which one is this this is the story of Herb Herb Baumeister oh (laughs) a man that was named after seasonings (laughs) is it Herb or Herb it's, yeah, her, it's herb. herb when it's seasonings. Herb. Herb when it's when a man. It's a man. <laughs> what if it's of a killer? Herb. Herb. Yes. Herb was born on April 7th, 1947, making him an Aries. Mm. And when unhealthy, an Aries can be quite jealous and quick to gel. <laughs> they can be a volatile group of people. And what I meant to say is when unhealthy, an Aries can be quite jealous and quick to anger, not quick to jealous. Well, quick to jealous too. Quick to everything. Uh, Not to give anything away too soon, but you get the idea. He was very unhealthy. He was the oldest of four children, and it sounded like he had a very normal and steady childhood. His dad was an anesthesiologist, so the family did very well, and they eventually moved to a really nice area of Indianapolis called Washington Township. I looked up what it was like to live there, and the website said, there's not much drama, and there are really nice parks to visit. (laughs) That's like the (laughs) overall rating of... Of Washington Township. I would be cool with that. No drama, lots of good parks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so things were things were perfect until they weren't. Out of nowhere, Herb exhibited some concerning changes when he reached adolescence, as a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. According to the people around him, and especially his teachers, he lost his ability to distinguish between right and wrong. Lost it. Lost it. Like he was a nice boy until he wasn't. That's so weird. (laughs) He developed a very dark sense of humor and became fixated on vile things. One day Herb found a dead crow and decided to put it on his teacher's desk. He even peed all over his teacher's desk at some point. And urine is like kind of like a big thing in this story for him. (laughs) So I decided to look up the psychology behind it. And I guess it's a way of asserting dominance and causing humiliation. Mm -hmm. Herb had a really bad temper and often disrupted class with his volatile behavior. Because of this, his fellow students didn't want to be around him. He was aggressive, morbid, and unhinged, and no one wanted to be friends with him. A classmate named Bill Donovan stated that Herb would daydream and become transfixed with repulsive fantasies, like what it would be like to taste 
pee. Ew, <laughs> Human <he's> pee. Fixated <laughs> with this urine stuff. I know. It's a big thing for Herb. Ugh. His teachers didn't know what to do, so they reached out to his parents, who had already noticed these changes as well, so they took him to get a medical evaluation. Tests revealed that not only did he suffer from multiple personality disorder, which is now known as disassociative personality disorder, but he was also schizophrenic. And for unknown reasons, the Baumeisters decided not to seek treatment. And this absolutely shocked me seeing as they had the means to make this happen but also herb's father worked in the medical field well wasn't wouldn't this have been like in the 50s late 50s 60 early 60s, 60s. yeah, yeah so. it's different mental treatment is different than you know health and physical so i i could see how maybe the opinions of it differed um but also during the 1960s the most popular treatment for schizophrenia was called electroconvulsive therapy yeah. and patients would be shocked multiple times a day in hopes of not curing them but making them more manageable for the staff to deal with and it, this is just an observation and not based on any evidence but i'm wondering if the father knew about how dangerous these like so-called treatments were oh, and totally. he didn't want to subject his son to it yeah that's a possibility for sure and luckily, a decade later, this practice was deemed uh, inhumane and drug therapy became more common. But as much as I tried to find any information on whether or not Herb was taking any medications, nothing came of it. Hmm. Even after his diagnosis, he continued attending his public high school. Whoa. I know. Shocking. That, yeah, that seems like a real liability. Unhealthy, unhealthy choice. Yeah. Herb struggled heavily in the socializing department. There is nothing that he wanted more than to be a part of the popular group. His high school took sports very seriously. So the guys on the football team basically ran the school. And on the other hand, Herb was academically inclined, but he didn't have an athletic bone in his body. Mm. However, Herb was determined to be accepted by the football team. And in his mind, it was either be accepted by the popular kids or no one at all. That group wanted nothing to do with him, and Herb finished his last year of high school as a loner. So while he struggled socially, he had been able to maintain his grades. He was accepted to Indiana University, and he started college in 1965. His strange behavior continued, and once again got in the way of him making any friends. Herb was so disheartened by being an outcast that he dropped out of school his first semester. His father took education very seriously and pressured Herb to return to Indiana University in 1967. Well, he dropped out before the semester was even over, but this time he did meet a lady friend. Her name was Juliana Sater, and she was a part-time student as well as a high school journalism teacher. She seemed to be the first person that didn't write him off due to his bizarre behavior. Juliana seemed more focused on all of the things that they had in common. They were both extreme Republicans, and they dreamed of owning their own business one day. Can you imagine marrying someone based off the fact that you're both extreme Republicans and you wish to own a business one day? <laughs> like what all beautiful relationships are born from. <laughs> yeah, like that's what it's founded on. I know. Oh my God. Business and conservativeness. <laughs> Four years later, they get married. Only six months into the marriage, Herb's father had him committed to a mental institution for reasons that are unavailable to the public. His wife did say later that Herb was hurting and needed help. Regardless of what happened, Juliana stuck by her husband's side. They went on to have three children, Marie, Eric, and Emily. Herb's father was desperate to help out his son and give him some sort of direction and means to support his family. 
So he pulled some strings and got Herb the position of copy boy at the Indianapolis Star. Herb had always had a strong work ethic, but his inability to get along with those around him always got in the way of him sticking to something. Yeah. He was really, really excited about this new job. And even though it consisted of running errands, he was hopeful for what it could lead to. Unfortunately, this man cared a lot more about being liked than maintaining his job. Herb? Herb, I know. (laughs) One of his coworkers, Gary Donna, recalled Herb being very sensitive to the way that he was viewed and treated by the higher ups. He was obsessed with the concept of being somebody. Herb thought that maybe he could become one of the guys if he volunteered to drive Gary and some of his friends to the Indiana University football game. Well, he shows up driving a hearse and wore a chauffeur's cap. What? And apparently he was like speeding and like, he reminded me of the Joker in the way that it was described, where he's just like laughing hysterically and like zipping in and out of traffic and cars and racing to get to the stadium all while in a hearse wearing a chauffeur's cap. Well, people are just rolling around in the back. Yeah, but (laughs) (laughs) he thought that this was like absolutely hilarious, but his coworkers and their dates did not find this funny. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) I know. Yeah, this guy gave us, he's giving us a ride to the game, babe. (laughs) (laughs) pre-game at my house led to the stadium i would not get in i wouldn't have gotten in my god so of course he wasn't self-aware or sane enough to realize that he was the problem but he was sick of being treated like a nobody at the indianapolis star so he quits and he gets a job at the bureau of motor vehicles which is the bmv that confused me because i'm used to the dmv i was gonna say (laughs) do you mean the dmv Uh uh-uh not not here it's the bmv okay He made a concerted effort to adjust his personality and therefore not make the same mistakes that he did at his previous job. According to ThoughtCo.com, at the newspaper, he was childlike and overeager, displaying hurt feelings when he did not find recognition. At the BMV, he came off bossy and aggressive towards his coworkers, lashing out at them for no reason as if he was playing a role, emulating what he perceived as good supervisory behavior. So he just like gets it wrong every time. Every time. Just meet in the middle, somewhere yeah. in between. And I picture him doing all this while holding like a cup of urine and just sipping on it. Oh, no, Ashley, no. Well, I'm not the, <laughs> he's the one who's obsessed. <laughs> he's peeing on people as he's yelling at them. <laughs> yeah. So Herb thought it would be a fun idea to send a Christmas card to everyone in the office. The card was a picture of him and another guy and they're both dressed in holiday themed drag. Okay. And it didn't take long for the rumors to start going around. And eventually the hot gossip was that Herb was a closet homosexual and he was just off his rocker. I mean, he's married with kids and he's sending, you know, pictures of him in drag with another man to the entire office. Yeah, as like a Christmas card. It's bizarre. Once again, he thought it was funny. Herb continued to work at the BMV for something like, I think it was like 10 years, which is a massive achievement because like, as I've been saying, he drops out and quits everything. Even though everyone thought he was odd, he was very intelligent and ambitious. He was eventually promoted to program director. So Herb finally gets this massive promotion and more importantly, the recognition that he's been chasing his entire life. But what does Herb do? He urinates on a letter that was addressed to the Indiana governor at the time, Robert D. Orr. Dude, I was going to make a joke that he peed on something. Yeah, he cannot stop peeing on everything. Oh, my God. And it turns out that, like, literally months before, he had 
not heat, urine had been found on the manager's desk and everyone was like, this is obviously Herb's doing, but they couldn't find any sort of evidence to, you know, wow. pin it on him. But now that he's like, you know, peed on this letter so publicly, they were able to pin the manager desk pee on him oh and he God. was fired in 1985. Can you imagine your husband comes home and you're like, how was work, honey? And he's like, oh, I peed on the I letter. I peed again, babe. And, and they let me go. I have this feeling that he didn't tell her anything. Yeah. That's the gist of most yeah. of this. And even if he did, she was like, well, it doesn't matter. We're Republicans. And yeah. We're trying we to own a business. Own a business. <laughs> we want to own a business. <laughs> I would say that this is the point of the story where everything really starts going downhill. Oh, it was a soft, was- gentle slope. <laughs> and now it's just like really dropping off a cliff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Juliana had been a stay-at-home mother all of those years, but now with her husband unemployed and unable to find a new job because he keeps peeing on everything, she was forced to pick up odd jobs. Herb was now a stay-at-home father, and while he was very caring and loving towards his children, he now had a lot of time on his hands. He filled those days with drinking and visiting gay bars. Juliana had no idea any of this was happening. I'm also wondering where the kids are during all this. Yeah. Like she's, he's at home watching the kids, but then he's just like at the bar, just zipping off to the gay bars. Yeah. Despite erratic behavior, Herb had never gotten into legal trouble before. In September of 1985, however, he was driving drunk, got in an accident, well, yeah, that'll and do it. Led the scene. <laughs> yeah. And then only six months later, he was charged with stealing a friend's car. Once again, intoxicated. Uh, Herb was not someone who did well with too much time on his hands. Oh, really? Yeah. It doesn't seem like he was a you know very functioning adult. But in 1988, all of their wildest dreams came true. Oh. Herb and Juliana came up with the idea to open up a thrift store. Oh. The couple had always dreamt of owning their own business. And after borrowing $4,000 from Herb's mother, their dream became a reality. The Save-A-Lot store was full of gently used furniture and clothing and they donated a percentage of their profits to the children's the children's <laughs> to the children's bureau of Indianapolis. I love that. I know. I didn't want to give him credit. I'm going to give her the credit. I but yeah, it was her let's idea. give it to her. Yeah, she seems awesome. They absolutely killed it. Business was out of control, and they soon opened up a second location. Wow! Within three years of opening up these two stores, they were rich. Really? I guess we got to open one up. Yeah, let's open up a thrift store. What are they going to call it? Anna and Ashley save a lot. <laughs> save a ton. Save a ton by A&A. <laughs> they moved their family to a Tudor-style mansion on an 18-acre horse ranch called Hollow Fox Farms. It was located just outside of Indianapolis in an upscale area of Hamilton County. The home was ginormous and had an indoor pool and beautiful stables. It started to look and feel like things were headed in a healthy and happy direction. Herb had finally, you know, gotten respect that he had craved all of his life. Mm-hmm. He was known in the area to be very successful and charitable. So things were looking good for Herb. The Baumeister. The Baumeister. The Baumeisters. <laughs> you should say, only say it like that for now The Baumeisters <laughs> had the successful business, the money, and the dream house. But they did not have a happy marriage. Oh, oh what? Yeah, I know. no way. No way. <laughs> you want to stop peeing on her. <laughs> No. But they're both extreme Republicans. Yeah. They, <laughs> they make a share business. business. Same a lot. <laughs> Herb didn't treat his wife like a partner that he loved and respected. He treated her like an employee. 
Juliana tried everything that she could, including keeping her mouth shut when it came to business. <laughs> be like, like a woman does <laughs> when it comes to business decisions. But Herb still snapped. They argued constantly and separated multiple times throughout the years. According to one of my sources, Juliana stated that she and Herb only had sex six times total throughout the 25 years that they were together. Wow. And I read that. I was like, you know that there's an issue when you start counting, <laughs> like in keeping track and being able to keep track. Oh, yeah. You know that the relationship's yeah. probably not headed in a good direction. Yeah. Um, in 25 years, she had never seen her husband nude. Wait, what? Yeah. he. I, and I was like, what are the logistics then for the yeah. six times of lovemaking? Yeah. Are you guys like, it, they're probably in the dark. It's probably nighttime. All exactly. the lights are off. They're underneath the blankets. After the shower. I'm sure it was missionary over in three seconds. His eyes are like screwed shut. Yeah. So depressing. Yeah. She. I guess he would bring his clothes to the bathroom and always undress and then redress and... I don't know. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. That, that's very much on brand with someone who pees on his boss's desk. Yeah, yeah. It didn't feel like shocking to me. No. So regardless of all the blatantly obvious warning signs, Juliana was very dependent on Herb and just chose not to see the red flags. Okay. I know. <laughs> that's a choice. However, Juliana was concerned about her kids being exposed to the turmoil and she would often leave to stay with Herb's mother at her Lake Wawasee condo. What, say that again. <laughs> the what? You kids Lake Wawasee. <laughs> it's Wawasee. Wawasee. Oh uh, yeah. Sounds like a toddler. It's a real to place. Say something else. I Wawasee a twee <laughs> in the <an> ocean. <laughs> they told friends and employees that Herb only stayed behind so that he could look over the business, just to maintain, you know, the yeah. facade of being perfect. The decline of their marriage was evident in the way that they kept their home. The once pristine home was now overgrown with weeds and the rooms were a chaotic mess, boxes everywhere. Housekeeping had just gone out the window. Interestingly enough, that's sarcastic, Herb meticulously cleaned and decorated the pool house. He made sure that that part of the house was always stocked with alcohol and ready for a big party. Okay. Yeah. Now that the family had left, he was free to behave and decorate however he wanted. Oh. And uh, his decorative choices are bizarre. Um, okay. He brought mannequins home from work. He dressed them, and then he positioned them throughout the room. Oh, he, like those were the guests? Those were his guests. It was what he's always dreamed of, being surrounded by people that want to party with him. Wow. It's so creepy. One day in 1994, their son Eric was playing in the wooded area of their backyard. And we'll post a picture. It's it's actually like the most ideal place to grow up. It's so beautiful. It's like really? this massive mansion that has like gorgeous rolling hills. And then it has like a wooded backyard, which is like great for any kids. Oh, like imagination. Yeah. Except for if you have Herb as a dad. <laughs> so as Eric is playing in that wooded area, he came across a half buried human skeleton fully intact. Oh. Frightened, he ran inside to tell his mom about what he had just found. Juliana waited until Herb came home from work to show him the discovery that their son had made. I'd call the police Herb immediately. Herb has the answers. Yeah. <laughs> Herb simply told her that it was one of his father's dissecting skeletons and he had just been storing it in their garage. And then they buried it in the ground? So he said that woods? he said that he wanted to clean out the garage one day and then he decided that burying it in the backyard was the way to go okay and then he's like just drop it his wife believes him topic is dropped 
Whoa. I know. It's, it's, it's a lot. Meanwhile, an article was published in a newspaper called The Indiana Word about how young men were disappearing and not returning. Oh, boy. And right the same year. <laughs> With every disappearance, a new article was published, but they never received much attention, most likely due to the fact that all of the missing men were homosexual, and they were disappearing from very conservative towns in the Bible Belt where homosexuals in general were outcasts. What bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's why it keeps happening. Exactly. And at this point, I think there had been like four or five articles that had been released and just wasn't getting any attention or time. Instead of assuming that these men had been kidnapped or killed, officials actually believed they were running off to more accepting cities like San Francisco and New York. <laughs> okay. <No. laughs> The first person to start piecing together all of the disappearances was a private detective named Virgil Vandegriff. Virgil was seasoned in the law enforcement category. He was a sheriff in Marion County, and after retiring, he opened up a very successful private investigations firm in Indianapolis. He was widely sought out for missing persons cases. Because of where they're located, someone has to be missing for 24 hours to be classified as missing, and if district detectives cannot find the person in 30 days, then it goes to the missing person bureau for them to investigate. So it's a very like long, drawn-out process. And often spouses, parents don't want to wait, and they contact Virgil to get the job done. Mm. In June of 1994, the mother of 28-year-old Alan Broussard contacted Virgil for his services. At first, he didn't worry too much because a lot of these cases end up just being runaways. After beginning his investigation, he discovered that Alan was a heavy drinker, he partied a ton, and he frequented gay bars. In fact, he was last seen when he was leaving a gay bar called Brothers. Virgil was given three more missing persons cases very similar to Alan's, and by July, Virgil was convinced that Indianapolis had a serial killer targeting homosexual men. Virgil discovered that a detective named Mary Wilson was currently investigating multiple disappearances of homosexual men in the area. Their cases were oddly similar to Allen's. Not only were they all about the same age, they looked very similar as well. This killer was preying on a type. Soon after, he discovered the small articles that had been printed in the Indiana Word. One particular article was about an individual named Jeff Jones, a homosexual man that disappeared a year earlier in 1993. The article made it sound like Jeff just disappeared into thin air one night. So now it's July of 1994 and another man has gone missing. 34-year-old Roger Allen Goodlett left his mother's house and went to a gay bar. Roger's mother did not want to wait the obligatory legal period so she sought Virgil's help. All of these cases were remarkably similar and he knew in his gut that they were all connected. Virgil began to scour all of the gay bars in town in search of any information that might be helpful. He came up empty-handed except for one bit of information. Roger had last been seen getting into a gray car with an Ohio license plate. One day, Virgil received information that would be groundbreaking for this case. A man named Tony Harris had seen the missing persons posters and recognized Roger Goodlett from the gay bar scene. He told Virgil that he had just been with a man that he is absolutely sure is a serial killer. Ugh. He tried notifying the local police, but they 
turned him away and treated him like he was a liar and a crazy person. And this is what Tony told Virgil. One evening in August, Tony went to a local gay bar called 501 Club. He spotted a tall, skinny man studying Roger's missing persons poster that was hanging behind the bar counter. Oh, eerie. Tony said that he knew instantly that this man had killed his friend. He said that there was something about his eyes and the way that he was so captivated by Roger's photo. So what did he do? He walks right up to the man and introduces himself. The man called himself Brian Smart. And after some small talk, he invited Tony to his home. Brian said that he was a landscaper from Ohio and that he was staying in a big house right outside of town. He said he was doing landscaping for the new owners and he would just be staying there temporarily while he finished the job. He asked Tony if he'd be interested in a few cocktails and a night swim. Tony says, sure, why not? He thinks that he's a killer, but he's just like, he had to figure it out for himself. Yeah. Brave or stupid, we don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that I would do that for you. I wouldn't do that for you. Okay, good. Yeah. Because I definitely don't want to do it for you. No, we can check on that. I feel better. Okay. Okay. We're not Liam Neeson and Taken. We don't have a certain set of skills. We don't have a certain set of skills that make us a nightmare for anybody. (laughs) Well, (laughs) our partners, maybe. (laughs) That's true. The two men go outside and get into Brian's gray Buick that had an Ohio license plate. They exit the city and drive towards the suburbs. Tony said that he could tell that they were entering into rich people territory. He said that there was one mansion and horse farm after another until they pull up to the entrance of the home where Brian is staying. There was a landscaped stone embankment with a sign on top, and he couldn't quite make out what it said, but he did remember that the word farm was in there. They continued down the driveway and parked in front of a Tudor-style mansion. Everything was dark, and the only light came from the moon. The two men entered the house through a side entrance, and Tony notes how cluttered the rooms are, boxes everywhere. Brian asked Tony to follow him down the stairwell into the basement, because there was electricity down there. Tony followed Brian down the steps. There was a wet bar and an indoor pool that was decorated impeccably, but it was very cluttered. That is when Tony noticed the mannequins staged throughout the room in various poses and outfits. A chill went down his spine. Seeing the tangible discomfort, Brian goes on to explain that he gets lonely, so the mannequins make him feel like he has company. Oh, okay. That that's doesn't gonna, make it better. That doesn't make it better for anybody. <laughs> that's basically that what we assumed. <laughs> made it a lot worse. Yeah, you just confirmed the fear. <laughs> Brian tried offering Tony a drink, but he declined. So that was a smart move, finally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this irked Brian, but he shrugged it off and then left the room. When he came back into the room minutes later, his whole demeanor was noticeably different. He was a lot chattier and like more relaxed and friendly. Tony was like, oh, so you're definitely coked up. He knew that he had been taking, he had done something. He was positive that Brian left the room to do drugs, even though Tony was denying any offers to party. He's like, well, it's not going to stop me. Mm. Tony did, however, take Brian up on a night swim. Tony swam back and forth in the lap pool while Brian went on and on about various subjects. Eventually, that talk turned to sexual fantasies. Brian said, that's so upsetting. Brian said, I just learned this really neat trick. If you have, (laughs) if you choke someone while you're having sex, it feels really great. You really get a great rush. He started gathering the hose that was coiled up at the edge of the pool and said, you just want to pinch these two veins. And he's like pointing at his neck. And it's such a great buzz. You should see how someone looks when you're doing it to them. 
Their lips change color. That's how you can tell it's working. That is the moment when any and all doubts were confirmed. Tony knew with every fiber of his being that this man had murdered his friend. He also knew that Brian had repeated this same song and dance numerous times and he was petrified. Tony knew or he felt in that moment that he had to play along to the best of his ability and then get the hell out of there. (sighs) I wouldn't have done this, but Tony did this. Brian asked Tony to choke him with the hose while he masturbated and Tony accepted. (laughs) After that was... I would have because I would have wanted to kill the person who killed you. Yeah, but he just like does what he asked him to. He didn't do anything to hurt him, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. After that was finished, Brian said it was Tony's turn. Oh, no, no. So maybe I'll I'll rephrase. (laughs) I wouldn't do this part especially. (laughs) Brian tied the hose around Tony's neck and pulled tighter and tighter. And he can. Wait, he agreed to do it? He agreed to do it. And. Tony said that like it got to the point where he couldn't like stand the amount of like blood pressure that was like just being forced into his head. So he pretends to be unconscious while fully awake. And he suddenly feels the hose loosen up around his neck, but he keeps his eyes shut. Brian starts whispering his name over and over again. Then he felt Brian grip his shoulders before like violently shaking him. I think like to see if he was conscious or not. Yeah. (laughs) Tony's eyes shot open and he was met with a rattled and very shocked expression on Brian's face. He explained, Brian explained, that he was just scared that Tony had passed out. And according to Murderpedia, Brian played it all off like it was a mistake and you didn't mean to do it. He was, he in fact, he like turned it around on him and he was like, people die doing this. Like you can't, you can't joke around like that. And Tony's like, you just really yeah. choked me out. Yeah. <laughs> so according to the article by Murderpedia, uh, Brian passes out he just dozes off in an inebriated state he was like slurring his words he couldn't stay awake and while he slept tony crept out and started looking through the upstairs rooms tony didn't buy the whole i'm a landscaper only living here temporarily story and yeah, is it, who invites their landscaper to live with them temporarily while you're doing work for yeah. them before you move in <laughs> give me a break <laughs> yeah. uh well his instincts and our instincts were correct because he found children's toys and women's clothing in the bedrooms. Scared of getting caught, he snuck back into the room where Brian was still sleeping. When he awoke, Tony convinced Brian to give him a ride back into the city. Brian was not happy about this, but he agreed. He made Tony promise that he would meet him at the 501 Club the following Wednesday. Tony knew without a shadow of a doubt that this man was a serial killer and that he had killed his friend. So this is when he calls up Roger Goodlett's mother, who gives him Virgil Vandegrift's information. The next Wednesday, Tony showed up at the 501 Club with one of Virgil Vandegrift's men waiting outside the bar. No one that met Brian's physical description ever pulled into the parking lot or walked into the bar. Brian Smart had stood him up. Virgil took Tony to the Indianapolis Police Department, even though they had already labeled him as a liar with a ridiculous story. Virgil knew that he could count on one detective to listen to him, a woman that was currently working on a number of missing persons cases that felt very similar. Mary Wilson was currently investigating the disappearances of Richard Hamilton, Johnny Bear, and Alan Livingstone. After talking to Tony, Mary believed that he was the missing piece to this investigation. This guy just survived a night with the guy who potentially murdered all of these men He had seen his face, he'd been to the house, he had seen his car, this was massive. 
Mary drove him all around the suburban neighborhoods, hoping that he would be able to retrace where they went that night. Unfortunately, everything started looking the same. The houses, the stables, the roads. He knew there was no way he could find a house that's only distinguishing feature was a sign that had the word farm in it. They gave up on the house search and decided to frequent the gay bars in town instead. Mary said, just get me this guy's license plate and we'll take it from there. Almost a year later, in August of 1995, Tony happened to run into Brian Smart at the same bar. Damn, a year a later. A year later. Yeah, Mary just had to like, just keep they trying. all just had to wait and see and, and they didn't give up, which is awesome. Tony kept going to all of these gay bars. It, well, he probably was going anyways, but yeah. <laughs> he's a man on a mission as well. Yeah. So he runs into him in August of 1995 and he quickly gets Brian's license plate and hands it over to Mary Wilson. Mary ran the plate and discovered that the car was registered to a man named Herbert Baumeister. Shocking. <laughs> I, know, I, I really wrote this in a way. <laughs> Didn't give it away at all. Mary showed up at Save-A-Lot and confronted Herbert. She informed him that he was a suspect in a case involving numerous missing men and requested that he allow investigators to search his home. He obviously says no and told her to go through his lawyers. Next, she went to his wife, Juliana, who also refused. Hamilton County officials wouldn't issue her a search warrant because they said she didn't have enough concrete evidence to warrant the search. There was nothing she could do. It sounded like the pressure of a possible investigation was enough to make Herb snap because he had an emotional breakdown six months after Detective Mary Wilson showed up at his store. Juliana had had enough and finally packed up her things and filed for divorce. The Children's Bureau canceled their once successful partnership with Save-A-Lot and they were forced to file for bankruptcy. Juliana could not get the memory of her son discovering the skeleton out of her head. Now that she knew her husband was a possible suspect in a murder case, the explanation behind the skeleton discovery just didn't feel right. <laughs> now it doesn't. Two years later, in June of 1996, she told Mary about her son's discovery and finally granted investigators permission to search the property while Herbert was away. On June 24, 1996, Hamilton County officers walked onto the Baumeister's property to begin the search. Juliana greeted the officers with her lawyer by her side. She led them to the wooded backyard and pointed to the area where her son had found the skeleton two years before. She explained that the only reason she didn't notify the authorities back then was because she actually believed her husband's story. It didn't take the Hamilton County officials very long to figure out that they were standing on top of a graveyard. There were tiny fragments scattered across the area, and at first glance, you might think that they were just pebbles and rocks. They quickly realized that they were chipped and broken bones. There were human oh, teeth what? that were visible as well. Oh my God. Just on top of the soil. Scattered, Whoa. chipped bones and teeth. A chill ran down their spines as they realized that Herbert's children had been playing where their father disposed of his victims. No one wanted to believe that all of these remains belonged to human beings and the bags of bones and teeth were sent to forensic anthropologist Stephen Naroki. Upon examination, he declared, they're human, they're recent, and they've been burned. Indianapolis had never seen anything like this before. The next day, more police officials arrived at the Baumeister home to continue the dig. The anthropological team would place these orange, like, little flags on the ground every time they found bone. 
And after just 30 minutes, the ground was littered with a hundred flags. Oh, whoa. It was a quick investigation. Wow. (laughs) They said that it looked like a mass disaster scene. When the investigators went inside the house, they discovered that everything was exactly as Tony described. The pool, the mannequins, the wet bar. That's when they discovered the hidden video camera. The police knew that this video camera would contain everything they needed and more. And just upon looking at it, they looked at it and they're like, we know that this is where he films the strangulations and then does whatever with them after. Whoa. But unfortunately, they were never able to find those videotapes. And there's like some theories about it we'll discuss later. Oh, okay. There were piles of compost and leaves with incinerated bodies underneath, which meant that Herb would simply bring the dead bodies out to his family's backyard, cover them up with some leaves, and then like set them on fire and then leave them out there. Wow. Upon discovering this, Juliana was questioned about how this all could have happened without her knowing. Yeah. Very suspicious. Yeah. But she said that it made sense because she would leave Herbert for months at a time when oh, she wanted yeah. to get her kids away. And then yeah. they would stay at the, remember the Lake Wawasee house yeah. with Herbert's mother. So it was very possible that like she, he had a whole other life that she knew nothing about. Yeah. And he obviously had a ton of secrets anyways. And she did turn, you know, I was going to say turn her other cheek. Is that the phrase? Turn the other turn cheek. Turn the other cheek. Yeah. She did that. Yeah. <laughs> After just one day of searching, the diggers discovered 5,500 bones and teeth which they determined to be approximately four bodies. Investigators searched the drainage ditch that separated the Baumeister's property with the neighbor's property, and they found countless spines and human ribs. Oh my God. Among the fully intact bones, they found cans of Herb's favorite beer and a pair of handcuffs. They determined that the skeletons of approximately 11 bodies were on the property. The next step would be to identify who those bones belong to. In September of that year, anthropo- in September of that year, anthropolo- anthropologists. <laughs> what is that word? Anthropologists. 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 A bunch of Rothschilders. It sounds long. It like looks long right now. <laughs> in September of that year, anthropologists. <laughs> oh my. In September of that year, anthropologists were only able to determine eight of the identities due to dental records. This is not funny. And I no, can't. it's not it's funny. Not it's funny. just it's funny just, that you I can't, can't say, say the word. Anthropologists. Oh, good job. In September of that year, anthropologists were only able. I'm so sorry. Ashley. We're only able to. We're only able to determine <laughs> eight of the identities due to dental records. Roger Goodlett, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, Manuel Resendez, Mike Kern, Johnny Bear, Alan Broussard, and Jeff Jones. On June 28, 1996, Herb drove his 1989 Grey Buick to Canada. He stayed a few days along Lake Huron before arriving to Pinery Park. On the night of July 3rd, he pressed his Magnum revolver to his forehead and pulled the trigger, killing him instantly. What a coward. I know. He left behind a three-page suicide note claiming that he took his life due to inevitable like bankruptcy, a failing business, and a failing marriage. Sure. The final sentence of that three-page suicide note stated that he would eat his favorite snack, a peanut butter sandwich, and then go to sleep. His body was found by a group of hikers. Because of his cowardly suicide, he never went to court, and he never answered for the horrific crimes that he had committed against 11 innocent men. And we will never know if there are more victims. 
Yeah. It well even so then I read that even though there's no way of truly knowing, it is believed that her Baumeister was also the infamous I seventy killer. Oh. Between 1980 and 1990, nine bodies were dumped along Interstate 70 between Indianapolis and Ohio. The victims were all young gay men that had been strangled to death. Interestingly enough, in 1991, bodies stopped showing up, and that is the year that Herb and his family moved to Fox Hollow Farms. Oh. So they just relocated yeah. out of the and area. And he had that big house. He had a dumping ground, yeah. a new one. Yeah. In 1998, a man came forward after seeing a picture of Herb Baumeister. He said that he saw this guy, Herb, leave the club with a man named Michael Riley. Michael Riley's body was then found off of the I-70, like dumped in a stream mm. right outside of Indianapolis. Mm. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think it's him. Yeah. Virgil stated, he fit all of the components of a serial killer. Among them, the ability to keep his crimes in control and silent under an everyday nonchalance. He was a business owner whose store many townspeople frequented. My own office was only a mile and a half away from his place. I never met him, but from what I understand, he wasn't the type of guy you'd at first suspect of being a sexual psychopath. The danger signals are always there in people of Baumeister's caliber. Trouble is the public ignores them. In Baumeister's case, even his wife ignored them. Lethargy, it's the serial killer's greatest strength. A man named Robert Graves now owns Fox Hollow Farm. And he said that after he moved like his whole family into the house, they started experiencing crazy paranormal activity. When his son would be swimming in the pool, he claimed that he could feel the sensation of fingers tightening around his neck. Ugh. They all reported feeling a strong presence as well as seeing shadowy figures and hearing weird knocking sounds. A paranormal investigator named Richard Estep visited the property and actually wrote a book about all of his findings. And it's called The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm, if anyone is interested in reading. Yes, I am. Thank yes, you. apparently it's a chilling novel. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the terrifying story of Herb Baumeister, a family man that led a double life and killed at least 11 men. Ugh. at least at least definitely more absolutely you did a great job telling that story thanks girl good job very <laughs> good it was an interesting one it is interesting yeah it just it's kept developing very unsettling it had all the makings of a of a piece that i like yeah the double life a secret uh secret homosexuality <laughs> oh, <laughs> which i love i love <laughs> yeah. a wife that you know Turns Doesn't the other cheek. Turns the other cheek. <laughs> I still. I don't. I, know. Act, I don't actually know if that's the right. Turns a blind eye. Turns a blind eye is for sure. What's the turns the other cheek? What's yeah, the turns ch her cheek away. <laughs> She's just not looking <laughs> yeah. at any of the red yeah. flags. Yeah. Uh, a successful businessman. It's like there's there, yeah. everything about it is, and I also like the arrogance in which he dumped the bodies, and then all he did was just you know put some leaves on top. That's crazy to me. Because even when his uh, wife, I, I I read in one of my sources that even when his wife would go away, the son Eric would be left with him. Oh, and e so even when um, they were investigating the house, when Herbert was was away, and yeah. Julie had or Juliana had had the um, investigators come to the property, she was freaking out because her son was actually with Herbert. And oh. they had to do this whole thing where cause she, he had no idea that they were investigating. So right. he had no reason to be alarmed when 
police officials show up at the door and basically say, hey, you need to, you know, you need to give your son over to us. He thought it was just kind of like a weird negotiation with like the divorce. So he just, exactly. So he just was like super amicable and he was like, there's Eric. And then he did nothing. But then I think the realization set in very quickly. And when he started hearing that there had been investigations at, you know, Fox Hollow Farms, that's when he gets in his car and then drives to Canada. Okay. So he doesn't answer to anything that he has just done to his family and all these victims. Piece of shit. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And you could argue that that's just mental illness, but I think that's also just being a cruel, corrupt person because it's both. Not all schizophrenics are murdering innocent humans. No, not at all. So... All right. Well, that was a great job. Thanks so much, Ashley. Appreciate it. All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at crimebarpodcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.